Welcome everyone to our podcast where I, Alicia Swamy, Keely Severson, and Eric Johnson are exposing mold. Today we have the founder of Biotoxin Illness, SIRS, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Richie Shoemaker is a 1973 of Duke University and a 1977 graduate of Duke Medical School completing a family practice residency at Williamsport Hospital in 1980. Dr. Shoemaker began his rural primary care family practice in Pocomoke, Maryland in 1980, where he lives today. Beginning with the outbreak of hysteria, human illness syndrome in 1996, Dr. Shoemaker has devoted his career to unveiling the complexities of chronic inflammation inflammatory response syndrome caused by exposure to damp buildings, cyanobacterial blooms, dianoflagellates, spirochets, ampicoplexins, and recluse spiders, among others. Dr. Shoemaker began the first biotoxin illness practice in the U.S. in 2002 and has treated over 10,000 patients with SIRS illnesses. His nonprofit research group, the Center for Research on Biotoxin-Associated Illnesses, has raised over 2 million private funding of academic research. As a medical expert, Dr. Shoemaker has testified in over 200 cases. Shoemaker's research has led to the publication of 11 books, several book chapters, and over 40 peer-reviewed publications. His discovery of the role of VCS, HLA, MMP9, C4A, C3A, VEGF, TGF-beta-1, Neuroquant, and several other biomarkers are widely used by healthcare practitioners across the country. Dr. Shoemaker has been training and certifying other healthcare providers since his medical retirement in 2012, and his lecture series now extends to proficiency partners through a 27-module training course and exam. In collaboration with Dr. James Ryan, Shoemaker is applying the once arcane field of differential gene activation to the primary care of SIRS patients. Dr. Ryan's discovery of the role of hypometabolism in SIRS was a hallmark finding that underlies other chronic fatiguing illnesses including CFS, fibromyalgia, and post-Lyme syndrome. Dr. Shoemaker has been recognized by Who's Who in America for their Distinguished Career Achievement Award in 2018 and was additionally awarded Maryland's Family Physician of the Year for 2001. Together with Paul Taylor and Debbie Wadner, Dr. Shoemaker has been instrumental in bringing the academic research basis for SIRS illnesses to the public via their website, survivingmold.com. Hi, Dr. Shoemaker. Well, good afternoon. I know you don't know me, but my name is Keely Severson. Well, I'm pleased to meet you. Thank you. You know, I just started this page exposing mold kind of on a whim over a year ago in February because I had been mold sick and I didn't really know that much about it. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist by trade, but we did not learn anything about mold illness or injury in school at all. So when I started to suspect it was causing symptoms, my first thought was, I'm being paranoid. And then I just had this nagging voice in my head that said, exposing mold, exposing mold, exposing mold. So I just went ahead and registered the domain website and started a Facebook page. And wouldn't you know, Dr. Shoemaker, 30 days after I did that, I actually exposed mold hidden again in another rental. So I started talking about that quite a bit publicly. That's how I encountered Eric, just from talking about mold publicly. And so I'm really honored that you agreed to speak with us, and I'm thankful because I know that you have a special place in Eric's, Eric's story and Eric's history. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Shoemaker. You were the first person to look at the original evidence of chronic fatigue syndrome from a biotoxin perspective. Other researchers who revisited chronic fatigue syndrome only looked at viral causes. We know that rules of science, Science 101, say 
we always go back to the beginning. And it seems that some people either do not know the rules of science or deliberately break rules of science. So we thank you for being the first doctor to look at the historical evidence and acknowledge stachybotrys at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. You were the first person to validate Eric's story of stachybotrys at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. And Eric's story is in your books and also mold is in all of your books. We appreciate that you've been the only doctor to adhere to the basic rules of science because we do not want to see things of the past suppressed, nor do we want to see doctors and researchers fighting to keep these things unsolved. This is why we value and appreciate that you were the only person to acknowledge stachybotrys at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome in your books. Historically, we see power struggles in science when a doctor takes over a definition, morphs it into whatever they want, in an attempt to take that definition and press it upon the original. Chronic fatigue syndrome was and is a research instrument created by Gary Holmes in 1988. And interestingly enough, the signs and symptoms, in fact, were lifted out of Eric's own medical chart. On one hand, Eric is known for mold avoidance, and there are active opponents who criticize this and say it's not based on data. And technically, since we haven't gotten some research that we need, this could be true. But we know that many people use mold avoidance. We see people giving advice on moving tents away from houses. We know that when you were seeing patients, you had to use a fan to blow the air away so that it didn't bother you. And on the other hand, one listener actually shared with me their hopes for our talk would be to prove that there are numerous biocontaminants in water damaged spaces that are capable of contributing to CIRS, which sometimes manifests as chronic fatigue syndrome. Research on one does not negate research on the others. This conclusion confuses me because we know that CIRS is not the same as CFS. Eric did not get bit by a spider, nor have chronic inflammation from Accutane medication, nor stress. It was specifically stachybotrys that was found. This seems to mean CFS is still its own syndrome with its own original data set to still be solved. To say the opposite, that CFS, which came first, is now a subset of CIRS seems like reverse logic. My questions to you are, what data is being used to rule out mycotoxin exposure in gene activation now that CIRS research is leading to gene activation via actinomycetes, and does this invalidate the original evidence of mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, thank you. I, I, I listened carefully to your question, and I think we can set that answer up as the goal. I, I did want to start with some, some definitions, just to be sure. Alicia very kindly told me, we simply want to address the new SIRS science. We're looking forward to hearing your views and learn what this new evidence means for people with a SIRS diagnosis. The question from Keeley is well stated and deserves ample time to flesh out the, the complexity of the answer. Specifically, I want to start with a case definition for SIRS because some people are defining SIRS one way and some another, and the, the definition will show that limiting perspective on SIRS to just fungi is no longer something that we can really do now that the evidence is here. Basically, SIRS is a chronic multi-system, multi-symptom illness. It's characterized by exposure to the interior environment of a water-damaged building, WDB, with resident toxigenic and inflammogenic microbes, including, but not limited to, 
Filled in as fungi, that's where stachy comes in. Gram-negative bacteria, that's where endotoxins come in. And actinobacteria, that used to be called actinomyces. As well as inflammagens, including but not limited to hemolysins, mannans, beta-glucans, and spirocyclic trimanes, among others. And in fact, if you look at the consensus statement from the SERS Academy on part of surviving mold, there are 32 different entities that are listed as causing inflammatory responses following exposure. The difficulty is that we rely on observations and we rely on biomarkers. So that's a lot of blood tests, it's a lot of uh, echocardiograms, it's a lot of neuroquants, it's a lot of transcriptomics, and we have about 25 biomarkers. My friends in the chronic fatigue world have none. So I don't consider chronic fatigue to be a subset of SERS. I'm not sure what chronic fatigue is. Uh, I hear it called SEID. I hear it called uh, CFME. And when we have disparities in definition, then we're going to have disparities in, in thinking, disparities in logic, and disparities in treatment. So those are the differences that I see in, in, in this first, first glance. But the real issue is that I'm going to try to make the point today that the data that I rely on is about 45 papers, 14 books, and of those, 12 papers have been published since 2015 and 10 since 2018. So this is a, a mother load of, 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 of a store of information that, quite frankly, could be a, a tsunami of, uh, of drinking through a fire hose, if so, so to speak, if someone tried to digest all this once. We have three books, uh, including a textbook that was published last year, uh, and that one's not available for free. I think it's $24, but if you wanted to access a textbook, uh, Dr. Andy Heyman and Scott McMahon, who's a physician in Roswell, and I have written that, that book. We also have a book on a transcriptomics primer, and then there's frequently asked questions as well. So there's, there's a bunch of material out there to, to be looked at. But a lot of the upheaval, and I call it turning over the apple cart, in the mold world that I see, and I, I only, I'm not part of your Facebook group, so I, I'm seeing a biased point, point of view, is that I am not saying that mold is not a problem. Mold certainly is. But when I wrote Mold Warriors, and there was a picture of Eric on top of Mount Whitney, still I've got that in my office. He looked younger then. I have not aged a bit. I'm some, just the gray hair, that's all. But uh, it, was, it was mold. That's all we knew. We knew Stacky and a few other things. If you instill it in the trachea of a mouse and a rat, bad things happen. We could find these things through tape lists. We could do culture in a variety of things. But the cultural methods were not giving us the right answer as to what kinds of fungi are present in a water-damaged building. That had to wait until we had next-generation sequencing. Now we can see that it's not just five species of toxigenic fungi. It's 500 and Stacky doesn't get all the publicity he does you know, like he used to because there are other things that we now know are, are bad as well. Actinomycetes and actinobacteria are not new to this case definition. I read it to you. That was my case definition in 2003. First paper on actinobacteria was in 2001. And people knew these things were there, but they didn't have the mechanisms and the technology to identify presence of actinos. We didn't have the methods and the ability to identify bacteria making endotoxins. We barely could identify endotoxins. But now we can identify all these things. We are able to suffice the answer of what is specific causation. Now that we've got specific causation, we don't have 32 different elements swirling around in an amorphous vortex inside 
the teacher's lounge at, at Truckee High School that Eric had observed. I think his observations were correct. I think there's more to it, whether there was cyanobacteria in Lake Tahoe or not, I don't know. But the sense that if you find fungi, you're going to find actinos. And if the AW or activity of water is over 0.9, you'll find bacteria making endotoxins as well. The difficulty in having marvel that Eric had been able to figure out how to make himself feel better and avoid a lot of the, the terrible things he went through. And the book, the chapter he wrote for Surviving Wolves was, was good. I still like the one he wrote for, for Mold Warriors uh, better myself, but that was just my own, own thoughts. But basically, he figured out a way to avoid exposure, but then something would, would go wrong with his pick-em-up truck and then back of Is that a decon module or something he called it? I've forgotten. Global Environmental Control Unit. I knew you'd be great there. But basically, there were times that you knew that you were now being sickened by this safe environment, and you thought there was mold present. I thought it was mold present. I didn't know any better. Now I'm looking more at the likelihood that human habitat-derived actinos were seeded through your skin or somebody else's skin as well and created an environment in your mobile decon unit or wherever I'm supposed to call it. But that's speculative because we haven't done the, the testing to, to know that. When my MECU, my mobile environmental control unit, went bad because that wound up in surviving mold, how Eric is facing some current health problems. So, you know, his, his mold avoidance is not perfect, even though I tried so hard by building this custom-built camper. Well. After the uh, book came out, actually within months, actually, I found out that the problem was in my refrigerator. The uh, RV refrigerators are built with um, you know, foam injected into a cardboard former, and that served as a, a great substrate for, guess what, black mold. So and it wasn't, uh, it didn't look to me like actinomycetes, it looked like black mold. And I was able to remediate it. I, I found it, I isolated it, I got it out. And I fixed my, my camper. So there again, my problem was not with some kind of soil bacteria. It was with black mold. But specifically, if we look at, and here's, here's the quote. This is from a paper in Medical Research Archives in uh, February of 2021. Scientific disciplines dependent on accurate analytics invariably evolve, that's where we are, due to advances in technical aspects of measurement, okay? In disciplines in which adequate measurement is not available for applications to public health policy, that's where we were, the impact of new paradigms, that's where we are, in measurement can extend far beyond scientific thought. Both of these concepts apply to the effect of exposure to water-damaged buildings on human health. What causes the putative illness and what governments should do to make buildings safe for use have been impacted by development of molecular methods, particularly next-generation sequencing or NGS, and transcriptomics. The impact of human exposure to actinobacteria, for example, and identification of immune reactivity specific to these bacteria are now revolutionizing, one, both detection and quantitation of newly recognized pathogenic organisms, and two, the approach to the genomic basis for diagnosis and treatment is manifested by differential gene activation. When I was in Tahoe in 2009 at Reno with the chronic fatigue meetings, I met Eric, had a great time at a casino, never didn't gamble, and I didn't lose any money, but it was fun. But what we were there was talking about the state of the art, which is transcriptomics in my, in my dreams. We talked about symptoms, visual contrast, and proteomics. That's all we had. And people, some of the researchers from Florida, ran away when we came across them and tried to hide because they, could, they couldn't get away. Eric didn't let them go. 
But basically, where we are now is differential gene activation, and we are making more advances by the day. Next generation sequencing prevents, prevent, permits quantitation of exposure and confirmation of risk. Ah, prospective word, risk, associated with threshold of exposure. Ah, we now can determine threshold of exposure using defined human health biomarkers that in turn led to advances in metabolic. Here's the big deal Eric and I did not know in 2009. The, the metabolic complications are ones we published last year in September. They are real. That was what brought the attention to actinos to my mind. But basically, the metabolic and inflammatory issues of water damage building called SIRS, both from molecular hypometabolism. Now, nobody heard about molecular hypometabolism until Jimmy Ryan published that in 2015. We brought forward discussion of ciguatera, another one of the uncommon SIRS, by the very virtue that we thought it would make people less worried and less argumentative and less concerned about controversy if we talked about ciguatera. So ciguatera was our first, but then what came our mold problems and treatment with VIP, the end of the treatment protocol in 2016. So those were the forerunners that led to use of transcriptomics. Now in preparation for today's talk, I looked to see yesterday afternoon how many people we have that are untreated who have SIRS. It's over a thousand and of those 48% showed positive for the specific biomarkers for actinomycetes. That's a little higher than what I've reported before. 32% were, were looking at, at endotoxins, and right around 10% now, or we're getting a little better than 7%, are, are simple mold. Now, these were derived where people would have positive tests for actinos and negative tests for bacteria and negative tests for mold. That is where the actino number comes from. Conversely, if we have Hertz Me2 positive and negative actinos and negative endos, that's where the mold stuff comes from. But the diversity of findings of what we thought we would find in the literature for fungi has not been held out to be true. Part of the reason for that is this paper from Medical Research Archives, which has about 25 references, looking at what people have done to try to remediate homes and ask the question, why does remediation largely not work? Why does it largely not work? And the answer is fungi are overrated, it's being contaminants, mycotoxins are overrated. When Michael Soljuk from Vienna, Austria can identify 500 mycotoxins in a given multi or water damaged room, why are we content to think that five or six or just plain stacky alone is, is not? Eric started the ball rolling down the hill and he identified stacky. To his credit, what we have now are the descendants of that early observation. And the descendants are based on scientific disciplines that are dependent on accurate analytics. So our summary for this abstract is a current recommendations for assessment of exposure or reactivity to fungi. We didn't have assessment or reactivity to fungi in 2009 or 2000, year one, or 1999 when I got started in, in, in mold. We didn't have methods of remediation based on fungi alone that worked. We still don't. And those methods based on fungi alone do not support continued use now that endotoxins and actinobacteria have had major causes of human illness from exposure to water damage buildings. Now, there are some names I want you to know thinking about data and where the science is. Rachel Adams from UCAL Berkeley has written more than anybody else with modern uh, analytic methods. So if you just do a Google search or a PubMed search for Rachel Adams, 
She's the one that first identified, for example, that it was human habitat derived actinos deep in the, in the bowels of the building, the inner sanctum of bedrooms and bathrooms. That's where you'll find those seated. You can find these in buildings that are water damaged and buildings that are not water damaged. You will find Martin Taubel, T, I think I pronounced it wrong, T-A-U-B-E-L from Finland, just leading the path saying that our perception of what to do with remediation is wrong if it doesn't include everything. And then Michael Soljok is the expert in mycotoxins who's written 250 papers and I urge you to look at that. The key issue in the new revolution of what is the science of water damaged buildings comes from Jimmy Ryan, who's a transcriptomist, and he identified by simple observation of differential gene activation of molecular hypometabolism. He saw suppression of RNA production that would lead to manufacture of ATPases. He saw reduction of cytocycloxygenase in, in the electron transport chain. He saw reduction in translocases. Well, translocases sound like something's moving from one location to another. That's exactly right. And in our bodies, we use glycolysis to break down glucose to make three carbon fragments called pyruvate that should be transported through the outer membrane of mitochondria into the inner workings of the matrix of the mitochondria to provide fuel for ATP production. If the translocases that do this job are not present, if they're suppressed, will pyruvate get into mitochondria? No. Will mitochondria be functionally giving us energy? No. What will happen to that pyruvate? Pyruvate will be metabolized and broken down into lactic acid and lactic acid can be secreted against the gradient and exported outside the cell. Lactic acid is an intracellular poison. So what we look at is this difficulty with suppression through ribotoxins, through small molecular weight biomarkers, together with some of the other things we're talking about with actinos that prevent normal metabolism. This normal metabolism, once it's, it's led astray, leads to abnormalities and complications of metabolism that affect essentially everyone with SIRS. Now, it's not everyone. It's only 85% will be full-blown to have proliferative physiology. About 10% do not have proliferative physiology. But this is all derivative of the Warburg effect. So if you're using pyruvate to make lactic acid, you'll get a couple ATP. But that's about it. You won't get 36. So the search for what are we looking for, Eric started... And in 2016, we looked at the gene makeup of coagulation abnormalities and cytokine abnormalities, things we thought we knew. We didn't know about, Eric, you and I didn't know about coag problems. We saw people with clots and we worried about sed rates. Why were sed rates always so low? You know, we didn't think about viscosity, but other people did and they had looked at it. And sure enough, that's the answer that you and I questioned one time late one night. How come viscosity, correction, how come we have problems with low set rates and not high in this illness? Long comes new treatments. My treatment protocol was established by 2003. It, we led to our case definition by then. By 2008, we had VIP. And VIP became a miracle worker for some people. It did not answer the question of how do we remove everybody from exposure but by establishing case control data sets. 
that we collect to this day in over 40 building investigations and population investigations, we know that some of the complications we dreamed about that were there, we found out in 2017, were abnormalities of gray matter nuclei. And we could identify mechanisms of atrophy of, of people's nuclei in their brain. We can show it definitively and reproducibly in an in, 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 in MRI facility from place to place throughout the country and throughout the world. They gave a reproducible diagnostic pattern of finding enlargement or, or, or edema of forebrain parenchyma or white matter, edema of cortical gray or gray matter, and then suppression of caudate nuclei. Those three together conform to now what we see and you can recognize it takes 10 seconds eric for you and i to refute those experts that said that cognitive issues was just depression cognitive issues was just anxiety yeah cognitive issue was structural abnormalities of the brain that respond to treatment and respond to, to vip and correcting the illness yeah that's depression all right can i just ask you a question Sure. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I just got a little confused with something that you said. It sounded like you said that you and Eric started at mold, but didn't CIRS start with hysteria and not mold? We didn't know it was CIRS until 2010. We didn't know the, the lab abnormalities of hysteria had until we could run the assays. The tests weren't invented in 1996 and 1997 when I was diagnosing hysteria. Hysteria diagnosis was the best we could do with what we had. What we had was observation of where the kills were, looking at confounders and ruling out differential diagnosis and symptoms. Along came visual contrast sensitivity in 1998, and it wasn't until 1999 we found that VCS worked for cyanobacteria and other dinoflagellates in addition to fisteria, but it also worked for mold. And we never knew that there were actinomycetes involved and never knew that they gave a deficit in VCS as well. Your question is an excellent one. We had all kinds of names and in litigation and deposition, I got hammered a lot. Well, how, what's this chronic biotoxin associated illness, doctor? You call it SIRS now, why, didn't, why can't you come up with one name? Well, things evolve in science based on new information. The fact that Eric recognized things and I recognized things, I think is to our credit. And I'll, I'll say good things about him and maybe he'll say good things about me early on. But we've come a long way and we see way much more. Did that answer your question? Well, that was convincing. So what are these uh, complications from metabolism? If you have consumption of pyruvate to make lactic acid and you secrete it against the gradient, you will have a problem. I was all ready for today. Here it is. You will have a discrepancy between untreated patients and treated patients. And stage one is untreated, stage two is after my protocol, including VIP, stage three is after VIP, and stage four is off VIP. If we look at people who have molecular hypometabolism, shortage of all of those ribosomal and, 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 and ATPAs and translocations that I talked about, and they have positive IRS2. That's insulin receptor substrate 2 that opens the door that lets glucose enter the cell. Why is that important? Glucose entering the cell will feed glycolysis, creating more pyruvate, creating more problem with lactic acidosis and proliferative physiology. 
if we find out of six now in people who had molecular hypometabolism, IRS2, out of six atrophic nuclei, actually out of six nuclei, 4.1 are atrophic, 4.1. This is all untreated people, all comers. If you look at people who have a hypometabolism but don't have IRS2, so they don't have proliferative physiology, it's down to 3.0. So a reduction of brain injury if you are not relying on proliferative physiology. If you have MHM negative, IRS2 negative, you're down to 2.8, about the same as just as stage, stage one with MHM positive. But how about you have MHM negative and IRS2 positive? Sounds like something better than, than the, everything else. 1.2 on the mean. And that starts to get less than what's predicted for gray matter nuclear atrophy. How about superior lateral ventricle? That is a fluid-filled container uh, near the, uh, just above the fourth ventricle. Superior lateral ventricle busts the cortical gray. And if you have cortical gray atrophy, guess what happens to this balloon-like superior lateral ventricle? It gets bigger. So in stage one, 16.1% are MHM positive, IRS2 positive. That's the worst one. We go down to 7.6, 6.1, and zero. If, Keely, if you had your, your brain injured, you would not want to have MHM positive, IRS2 positive. You would want MHM negative, IRS2 positive. You can't get that any other way other than transcriptomics. It's the only way to get there. And if for that reason alone, identifying without question the mechanism of brain injury, that's, that's, that's enough. That one lawsuits, $3 billion in the cases that we had of Norfolk Island, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, with people in the military. You know that uh, they took, tried to separate one case for another. It was bloody warfare for everybody, including me, that was in it. But that was where Neuroquan made its, its way. And $3 billion was the final total, or so I'm told. All right, how about some easy way? Now, Eric knows I'm probably going to bring this up. If you want to know inexpensively without Neuroquan, without doing transcriptomics, how can you look to see who's got lactic acidosis? If we look at people who have a widened anion gap, that widened anion gap in SERS patients is due to excessive lactic acid in capillary beds. Now, Keely, I'll pick on you today. What is anion gap? It's the sum of sodium plus potassium. So potassium may be 4.5 and sodium may be 139. Call it 144 just for sake of argument. From that, we subtract the sum of chloride, maybe 104, and CO2, 20. That's 124. 145 minus 24. If it's a normal anion gap, we'll have a number about 12 or 13. But I just gave you a SERS patient, it's 24. We can follow sequential anion gaps, look to see who gets better. It's, it's reproducibly reliable. But the big deal, why do so many people with SIRS have shortness of breath? Now, the EPA tried to tell us they all had asthma. 21% was the number. They didn't even do PFTs. They said you got asthma with no PFT markers. Come on, give me a break. But if you look at what they really had, which is pulmonary hypertension, that develops in 80% of people who've got anion gap widening with nuclear atrophy of 4.1 with this injury of superior lateral ventricle. All of these entities go together. 
and that is published and that is peer-reviewed in 2019. I urge you to look at this paper in Medical Research Archives, Volume 4, Number 7. Now, this is a very difficult paper to read because it's full of uh, terms of, of, of metabolism. But you don't have to read it once. You're going to read it twice and three times. The jargon that goes along with SIRS now makes it impenetrable. Eric, it was a lot easier when you identified Stacky as being the problem in the teacher's lounge. There was more to it back then, but it's a cinch that when we look now, we've got to know about not just gray matter nuclei atrophy, we need to know about superior lateral ventricles and cortical gray as well. Because the longer people stay sick, the longer they stay exposed, the longer they have lab and transcriptome abnormalities, the more likely they are to have brain injury. So that when we look at people with premature onset of Alzheimer's-like syndromes in, in SERS patients, and I know you know plenty of them, those are largely correctable. You can profile with Neuroquan. It takes 10 seconds to read Neuroquan, for God's sake. Paper from, from about correction of gray matter nuclear atrophy is also an internal medicine review, April 2017. Uh, this was done with VIP after they'd been on the protocol by itself. Theoretically, SIRS has application to, here's a question, anion gap, A-N-I-O-N, widening is due to excessive presence of lactic acid in capillary beds uh, in circulation. What we see now is the chronic fatiguing illness is more than just SIRS, more than just Fisteria, more than just Ciguatera, more than cyanobacteria. We are noticing now that what's called TH17 Treg imbalance is intimately tied to the transcriptomics in our new Trangini 2, the second version, we can show the link from what was SIRS only to acute coronary syndromes, acute dissection of the carotids, acute dissection of a descending thoracic aorta. We also can show the deficits of T regulatory cells that are part and parcel of the metabolic complications are present. If you've got T reg cells, will there be normal resolution of tissue-based inflammation? What do you think, Keely? You think you can fix tissue inflammation without T reg cells? I'll give you a clue, no. So this illness that started with Stachy, started to get added with other things, is now going on way beyond just mold problems, way beyond just actino problems, way beyond just actino endo problems. We're looking at, what about diabetes? IRS2, let's sodium in, let's, let's glucose in. What else does it do? It'll turn on AKT1, 2, and 3. It turns on mTOR. It turns on OGT to create insulin resistance, for God's sake. I kept on marveling how many people had insulin resistance by type 4 Friedrichsen lipoprotein phenotype. They were everywhere. Why? Because OGT was turned on. And it's a mechanism through alternative delivery of biosynthetic pathway when you've got too much pyruvate and it's turned on to anionic glucosamine to make these other proteins now modified. OGA is suppressed. OGA takes that N-acetylglucosamine off. It fixes the problems we have with insulin resistance. But insulin resistance is related to the inflammatory and metabolic abnormalities in this common illness. So that paper was written by Shoemaker, Heyman, and James Ryan. That's from 2017. 2018, this book got the worst review I ever had. This is a gene primer for healthcare providers, the genomics of SIRS and associated molecular pathways, interpreting the transcriptomic results. 
well, why is this the worst book I ever wrote? Because nobody could understand it, and I didn't understand much of what I wrote either. I talked about how to interpret transcriptomics. We were looking at 50,000 genes. Holy cats. Who could do that? Nobody. So what Jimmy and I did, Jimmy mostly, was winnow down our 50,000 genes. But basically, we winnowed it down to 2,000 genes that gave the most signal-to-noise ratio that said this is SIRS and not something else. And then we cut it down to 187. These are the cream of the crop. And now with 187, that's what our genie is looking at now. So when we look at all of this information about genie, 187 genes, that means we're not looking at everything. It means there's other things that aren't there. I urge you to look at the consensus statement for the diagnostic process for chronic inflammatory response syndrome, the report of the consensus committee of surviving mold. We now call ourselves the, uh, the SIRS Academy. It sounds a little highfalutin to me, but it's basically people that want to have an academic basis for this illness that keeps on enlarging every day. This was published in May of 18. It's a free download, and all these are free downloads from the Surviving Mold website. Now, unfortunately, the gene primer is not a, a free download. You don't want to read that anyway. It's, the jargon is just ridiculous. Okay, so now we're getting closer. What we look at, I'm not going to talk about uranium mycotoxins unless I have to. Uh, it's a sense that the paper I wrote on mycotoxins in 2019 looked at 45 studies from around the world looking at mycotoxins found in urine in control patients who were perfectly healthy. The metabolism paper I mentioned to you, that was in 2020 in September. But what really made the difference was finding out that actinomycetes were huge players in metabolism. If I want to disrupt pyruvate delivery to, to into, into mitochondria, I can use translocases, and that's one thing that happens with the small molecular weight compounds. They're called ribotoxins, or ribosomal inhibitory proteins. There's a whole bunch of them. Mycotoxins are, are, do that to a certain extent. Actinos way more, and then bacteria to a little less extent. But then if we want to really do bad things, we can focus on what's called the voltage-dependent anion channel, the VDAC. This is the channel, a pore about 20 nanometers. Now, Eric, somebody told me you were looking at nanometer structures. Is that right? Yeah. Boy, do I have things to talk to you about. Man, because the nanometers from what we're going to talk about with extracellular vesicles, boy, is that exciting things. And you may well have been right. You didn't use the word. I didn't use the word. But boy, is this fantastic. Nanometer stuff that deliver packets of biochemical inflammation and metabolism abnormalities from cell to cell, biochemical communication. And that's the next paper that's coming out next month, uh, if I can hurry up and write it. But basically, the VDAC is another way to disrupt pyruvate distribution into mitochondria. It's a pore in the outer mitochondrial membrane. It lets in ions, solutes, and pyruvate. It lets out ATP. Well, if you let in ADP, and ATP is made in ATP, where does ATP go? It comes out through this, this pore. It also lets out reactive oxygen species, which is part of toxicity that we can have here. So it's not all a good thing. But it has a dual role with translocases. Also in the brain, a hexokinase, an enzyme that's bound to VDAC, blocks outflow of ATP. 
So that's a fairly complicated thing. But basically what we're looking at is that valinomycin is one of the compounds made by actinos that shuts down and shuts off VDAC. So if translocases shut off VDAC and porins, what about actinos? Yes. Now here's where the big deal comes from. There are two papers, a researcher from Hopkins named Head, H-E-A-D, who's published wonderful papers looking at the effect of itraconazole on VDAC, closes it right down. Now other antifungals are not quite so bad, but itraconazole is one of the most widely used antifungals and one of the worst to create proliferative physiology. Now in discussions with people like Eric uh, Gordon, he says, but people feel better when they're taking antifungals. That's right. When you're proliferative, you're making new cells. People do feel better. But meanwhile, silently, quietly, you are causing problems with brain injury. You're creating difficulty with Treg cells. You're creating pulmonary hypertension. That's not a fair trade, you ask me. I always get questions on that one. That's all right. But the papers are there. Now, the other issue is that actinos make compounds that disrupt the electron transport chain directly. Puricidin A knocks out electron transport complex one, and oligomycin, probably you've heard of oligomycin, that knocks out electron transport chain three. That is a permanent change. So this actino effect that knocks out VDAC is also knocking out mitochondrial function. I mentioned in passing Martin Taubol, and just to tell you that the uh, Surge Academy, led by Michael Schranz, has written a consensus panel statement, the Surviving Mold Indoor Environmental Professional Panel Consensus for Microbial Remediation, 2020. It came out last, last year in September. I urge you to get it. It's a free download. The writing is not obstructive to normal thought processes. It's clear. It's well-written. It's, it's, it's a good piece of paper to read. But it does start to talk about actinos and endotoxins together with, with fungi and filamentous fungi are what we're after against. One spinoff of all this work looking at actinos had to do with COVID, because it was interesting that the symptoms of COVID and some of the findings in COVID and the, and the hypometabolism, proliferative physiology that post-COVID patients had were typical of what SERS patients had. It was fascinating to look at people who were proven to be healthy before COVID, had a test that showed they did have COVID, and then had a test to show they didn't have, didn't have COVID, and a month later they started getting sick again. So they were healthy, sick, healthy, sick. And the idea was that, was there something about COVID that could create the same thing that serves an inflammatory basis? And sure enough, 56% of people had evidence of the specific causation for specific immunoreactivity of a positive isolate for actinos, MAP kinase positivity, and TGF beta receptor positive as well. The, 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 the triple header, they had all three, and those were turning on TGF beta 1 signaling, which is what we see in SERS patients, which is where the fibrosis comes in with epithelial to, to mesenchymal transformation. That is going on in kidney, it's going on in heart, it's going on in liver. It's where, where do you think all the cirrhosis is coming from? people that don't drink. It's coming from fibrosis from TGF-beta-1 signaling. It's coming in lung as well. 
So that when people say it's asthma and you do a diffusion capacity, you'll find a large number of people have got these problems from fibrosis. Now I maintain that, that COVID can act as a SIRS. There's so much boy noise about what people say about COVID. I, I, I wanna run away from that, that's for sure. The last biomarker we're reporting, Scott McMahon is the lead author. I'm sure everybody's heard of pandas and pans uh, in children, pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. We had done uh, a multi-sites trial four years ago, looking at, at what did we find. Every one of our 33 pandas and pans patients all met the case definition from the Stanford uh, consensus statement from a few years ago. They all, all they, they, were, they were fine. Everything that Stanford said, yep, we got them, except they all had mold. They all had problems. And we didn't assess them for actinos. We didn't assess those for, for, for endos, but I'm sure we'll find them. But we found mold for every one of them. And when we treated them with cholestyramine, the first few steps of the protocol, and remediated their environment, they got better, and their pandas went away, and their psychiatric symptoms went away. Okay, I've been trying to raise the issue of what data and what science is there I've given you 12 papers and two books. It's your turn, I'll try to answer questions. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, my evidence for mold at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome still stands. A lot of people have been telling me that uh, with this new evidence that no longer matters and that the ITSI has moved on since then. Now, if you look on page 439 of your book, Mold Warriors, when I uh, explained to Dr. Cheney that I wanted to look into mold, I said, there's probably bacterial involvement as well. Good for you. But, but this is no reason to fail to discover the toxic mold that was in the teacher's lounge, which was the actual cluster that Dr. Cheney called the Center for Disease Control to come and investigate. Now, I was amazed that all these researchers crowded around a bunch of sick teachers in a sick room and it somehow failed to occur to them that they ought to look in the room for a common denominator that was making them all sick. And the reason I stick with Stachybotrys, of course, is because after the CDC gave up, after Dr. Gary Holmes gave up, after Dr. Cheney stopped looking, the school authorities did look in the room. Lo and behold, they found toxic mold, which is what these researchers would have found. They would have been the first to discover Stachybotrys had they only acted like scientists and looked. So when I saw the confusion of the chronic fatigue syndrome world going off in all different directions, studying viruses, mycoplasma, sometimes Lyme disease, never knowing what they were looking for, I thought about the uh, process involved, how to do science. Now, if the Center for Disease Control has called for something very specific, like a cluster of teachers, at the very least, they ought to continue the investigation. So remember when... Uh, you and I were at the 2009 conference in Reno, and I approached Dr. Paul Cheney and identified myself to him. <laughs> <laughs> what an unusual oh, reaction he had. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that somebody with my level of evidence, he would be uh, eager to talk to, and yet uh, this was not the case. He turned around and ran. Well, it seems to me that this seems to be the common psychological element of academics, doctors in general, is to suppress evidence by running away from it. 
And this is what they did at the origin of chronic fatigue syndrome. They came, they saw what they didn't want to find, and they turned around and ran. And you were the first doctor after 20 years, the very first to come and look, to even talk about the evidence that actually started the chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, the actual thing that Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson called the CDC for help with. And this is just amazing to me that so many researchers the world over seem to have forgotten the due processes of science. And I thought when my story was published in your book, the title alone, Mold at Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, would make it clear that there was overlooked evidence, other researchers would respond, and here it is, 15 years later, not a single one has. Not a chronic fatigue syndrome researcher, not a mold researcher, not the Australian Parliamentary Inquiry, which is looking into both biotoxins and chronic fatigue syndrome, nobody. So I'm wondering, where do they forget how to do science? And what right do they have to even talk about chronic fatigue syndrome if they have never even looked into evidence that started it? Well, so Stachybotrys is a symbol of the most utter malfeasance of the academic world, the medical profession, that has probably ever happened in the history of science. 100% of chronic fatigue syndrome researchers failed to do the simplest thing and ask how the syndrome began. So to me, that's why I obsess about it. That's why I stick to it, because it's a symbol. There's other evidence that they overlooked as well, but this is the main one. Now, when the uh, indoor air quality profession started to get involved in 1994, and in the proceedings manual, they were speculating about this fairly recently coined chronic fatigue syndrome. They asked in several chapters, even dedicating one chapter specifically to the question of whether chronic fatigue syndrome was associated with stachybotrys. Now, to me, this meant they want an answer. And surely they would run a prototype for the syndrome, somebody who was there who could walk up and possibly give them some documents showing that indeed this is the case. So I was very uh, surprised to contact these researchers and learn that they didn't want an answer at all. That was the last thing they wanted. So to me, this is a complete breach of science and a betrayal of the Hippocratic Oath of logic and common sense to actually refuse to look into the very thing that you said you wanted an answer to. Now, when you flew me out to the Mold Congress in 2019, I thought we were finally going to settle this matter for good. I told my story, Dr. Xin Yang and other esteemed mycologists were there. In fact, two other people who had intimate association with the event that chronic fatigue syndrome, the original Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome was coined for, were there and we could have settled this matter pretty much within minutes. But after this January 2019 Mold Congress, there was no further interest by any of the Mold Congress. The matter was dropped, and here the opportunity to at least settle this one subset, a very important one because it did start a syndrome, slipped away and appears to be falling into oblivion. So that's why I was trying to resurrect that by criticizing other people in the Mold Congress and doctors and researchers in general for a, a lack of a systems approach to do their basic science when they get into confusion, they don't know where to go, start at the beginning. 
go back to the origin of chronic fatigue syndrome, and this is described in your books. Anybody could read it. They know where to go to find out about chronic fatigue syndrome, and there is nothing stopping them except their own unwillingness and their apparent desire to bias the scientific method by manipulation, deliberate omission of evidence. So I'm using Stachybosch as a symbol, and uh, I'm glad to see that you've continued to validate my story. There's nothing wrong with it. It may be just a subset, but it's an important one. And uh, I believe that we can still proceed with that. And as more people are getting interested in chronic fatigue syndrome, and more researchers want to know if COVID is connected with chronic fatigue syndrome, they will read this in your books, and they will come back, and we can settle this matter. You know, in the Ahab mentality of searching for the great white whale, I, I think there should be another book written. It would be Eric Johnson's Voyage. And we need to get you a peg leg or something, man, because uh, you, 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 stuck, you stuck to it. But, you know, the, the idea of, the, of an approach that could have been taken. Let me assume that what you say is true. It raises certain questions. How can we answer these? We didn't have the technology. You didn't have the technology back then. We have it now. And at the risk of, of overemphasizing things like COVID, we are looking at a, a, a world that is now increasingly affected by climate change. And I have no idea what's going to happen to the next microbial growth. One of your buddies talks about the sands blowing off the Sahara Desert and being blown over to Florida. Well, we've known forever that when the sands come, when it came yesterday to Florida, that's when we get blooms of, of, uh, of dinoflagellates and red tide. But the environmental factors that are torturing Florida from, from microcystis, because the whole state of Florida is, is one vast phosphate mine. And you start going place after place after place after place, and you know the houses being burned down on the west. What are they going to burn and build their houses back with? Build with soil? Well, yeah, sure. And then if you start building houses with soil, will you be bringing soil-based microbes in? So the questions are mounting exponentially. And I think the part of the, you know, the informed researcher is to remember where you started, never forget history, but then keep an eye on the prize, which is what does tomorrow bring? Are there any other questions? I'd just like to say that science starts with observation, and the first observation in chronic fatigue syndrome was extremely well documented and validated. So if anybody wants to find out more about chronic fatigue syndrome, they can go right back to the source. And at the very least, we can settle the matter of whether stachybotrys is associated with the syndrome. Let me spend five minutes, because that's all I got left, on the new actinomyces index. I'm, I'm skipping, because this is going to the next paper. On July 7th of this year, Enviro Biomics put forth the Actinomyces Index. I had been interested in that one of the markers for a moldy building is a musty smell. And then you say, if we ask the experts, what is the musty smell from? It's from geosmin. Well, geosmin is made by a soil-based Actinomyces organism, Actinobacteria. So here, one of the three ways to say you got a moldy building is to find Actinos. So it's a little, little crazy. I'd like to just interrupt that statement really quickly. I just spoke with Dr. Joan Bennett, who's a fungal geneticist, and she does understand that in buildings there are uh, microbial volatile VOCs. Um, sure. Her, but in her research, she has found that primarily one octin three ol, which comes from a fungus that causes the smell. 
the moldy mildew smell. So it's interesting to see the conflicting science of what you're what you're talking about and what a fungal geneticist has uncovered. So Jasmine is an actinomycetes. I'm sure she'd agree with that. What we're after is looking to see are soil-based actinos going to be the same threat that human-based, skin-based actinos? And the answer is that the soil-based, but by and large, are not lipophilic, and the ones from human skin are lipophilic, so that simply washing with soap and water rarely will clear skin for actinomyces or getting down to the bottom of the pits where sebaceous cysts are. But basically, the idea is that what we want to do is compare what species is dominant, and that's the ratio of number of different species of human habitat, there's 33 that are more than 10% listed on the pathogenic bacteria, actinos made by uh, Envirobiomics, and then 13 are left over to be looking at, at soil-based. So you divide X over 33, and divide that by Y over 13, you get a number, that's the dominance index. But more important is the prevalence index. And we take the five most common species of human habitat organisms and then take the mean of their bacterial equivalence per milligram and then divide that by the, the mean of the soil-based habitat. You get a number that gives you the prevalence index. And that number is over 2.0. You're going to have adverse effects from actinos. If that's the case right now, unfortunately, the technology is only through transcriptomics. You'll need to assay for uh, MAP kinases. There's six of them we use. They are non-specific in their own right. They're part of a lot of different pathways. They're not related to IRS2. They're not related to AKT, even though the books say they are. But basically, if we have MAP kinases and TGF-beta-1 receptors, there's three of them, one, two, and three. And it's more complicated than that as we go further. But that will give you specific causation, specific immunoreactivity. So that gives us two. That gives us endotoxin, CD14, and TOL4. And then we've got MAP kinases. And then we have TGFBR looking for, for actinos. What we're looking for and working very hard, I think I mentioned to you yesterday on the phone, that STAT1, one of the cytokine genes, is looking pretty good. It may be a biomarker for uh, filamentous fungi. Uh, Numbers are small right now, but there's bound to be one that'll be a specific biomarker for fungi. And that's gonna make our world a lot easier. Not worrying about amoebas, not worrying about, you know, protozoa, this and that. But it's, a, it's an exciting time to be involved in research. And basically, as far as I know, Mycometrics does an assay for Streptomyces griseus, but they don't do the full panel. I, I think Kente surely will do that sooner or later. Maybe you can check with, with Dr. Lynn, and he should do a speaker for you as well. Ask him how come he's not doing the human and soil. Okay, basically. well, how, how do all these uh, new findings affect the people who have an existing SERS diagnosis that was based on the idea that it was probable mold illness? If the mold illness is confirmed by Hurts Me Too, no real difference at all. It's where you get combinations of the other two factors that come involved. And that really is, is, is the, the new era and we have, not had a, we have not had a publication yet. We were next month, so the first one, bringing the, uh, the actinos to forbear to look to see what role do they have versus, versus mold and something else. Because what we had before was mold and something else here. Well, all these people that had mycotoxin summits and mold summits have to change their name? I think so. I, they never were, never were a summit to begin with. 
I just want to point something out really quickly on um, your paper that you sent. Uh, new molecular methods bring new insights into human and building health risk assessments. Uh -huh. This was with Neil Heyman McMahon, and you wrote specifically here, current recommendations for assessment of exposure reactivity to fungi and methods of remediation based on fungi alone do not support continued use. Now that endotoxins and the tenobacteria are found to be the major causes of human illness from exposure to water damage buildings. Now, I have an issue with this because there is so much data on mold showing issues and everything that you list beautifully and scientifically, thank you for that presentation, you can go back to the literature and you can see that it also can happen in someone who's exposed to mold and mycotoxins. So for me, when I read that statement from your paper, it's almost throwing the baby out with the bathwater to say, atinos and endotoxins are now what you need to be concerned about. Oh, and mold, forget it. I, that's not a problem, which I don't think is exactly correct. And now everyone has yeah, said there are remediation companies on mold, mold doctors, like Eric said, mold summits and everything that's going around. Campbell has an explosive amount of uh, research on mold and he's constantly pumping out papers. And so it, it's hard for me to just sit here and, and pretend like mold isn't a major issue when we have so much studies. I have collected all the studies that show almost same of the mechanisms that you present in your papers for atino and endotoxins to show that mold and mycotoxins do about the same thing to the body, including the pulmonary hypertension. It actually, stachybotrys is connected to pulmonary arterial remodeling, which is very concerning. And you also said yourself, there's over 500 molds and fungus and everything that's out there. Wouldn't it make sense to, to actually put more time into looking into the mold? Until we had transcriptomics, Nobody knew the extent to which endotoxins had specific reactivity, and nobody knew that there were specific reactivity for actinos. We now know that we can ballpark A, B, or C. Symptoms will not separate the three. Symptoms will not separate the other 29. And if we say symptoms for stachy, no, symptoms won't separate stachy from wallemia, for example. And here's, here's where the duty comes. Eric is right, the science has dropped the ball because there's no funding for it. If there's no money and you gotta pay the bills, are you a scientist, you wanna look at something you either grant for or not? You get people like me, it's all private. We raise over $2 million privately and we'll continue to try to raise, provided I live long enough to do that with that work. Your point's well taken. What is the tip off that you've got a fungus, a filamentous fungi versus an actino? Well, you start with isolation, and that can be done now inexpensively. You then proceed with biomarkers. The biomarkers have been validated. You add looking at, at Neuroquant. You add looking at Genie, and now Genie 2. Because as soon as we start extending Genie 2 to diabetes, someone like, like you shaking your head is going to say, well, don't you think we ought to be looking at A1C hemoglobin for diabetes? We should be looking at the mechanisms that are in addition to what's known. And it's like going to the North Pole. You know where it is magnetically. Everything from here is south, but you don't know the chasms and the crevasses that you got to go through. So it's a new exploration. And that's my message is we now know there's more things to look at beyond fungi. There's a lot of work done on fungi. I, I take pride in what I've done, but I also know that it was inadequate now with newer methods. 
And I well, have to uh, Transcriptomics also has its own limitations as well for testing. So we cannot forget that. We can't say that this is a fully advanced, foolproof way of testing and yeah. go forward and not point out the limitations as well. So I, I okay. think that's just my issue because um, a lot of Heyman's patients, a lot of your patients come to us and they ask about, I have this genie test. No one knows how to treat me. I don't know what to do. Okay. Um, so there's a concern. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're at the end because I would have liked to talk to you again. I do oh, have to okay. leave. And so let's do this again sometime. Thank and you for your time today, Dr. Shoemaker. Maybe we can schedule you for a part two and continue this conversation at a time that works better for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Sounds good. Short Thank notes. You. Bye. Bye-bye. And my final message is that Nobody has the right to talk about chronic fatigue syndrome until they look into the evidence that started the syndrome. If you guys wanted to ask some questions, feel free while you have us here. We'll stay about another five, 10 minutes if you're interested. Yeah, that's actually a good idea. If anyone wants to ask Eric a question, now would be a great time. Yeah. You, can, you guys can do that in the chat or just unmute yourselves. Hi, William. Hi, sorry, I'm very dark here. I'm at work. Oh, that's okay. Eric, did you feel that that answered? Some of the questions that you had? Uh, yeah, the main thing I wanted to find out is whether Dr. Shoemaker still considers my story in his books to be valid or not. And he does. Do you feel that he's uh, dis dismissing the stachybotrys time Absolutely. to some degree? Absolutely, because if um, he considered this to be important, he would still be working on trying to connect this evidence to the origin of the syndrome. You know, chronic fatigue syndrome is a specific research document authored by Dr. Gary Holmes and officially adopted by the Center for Disease Control for the purpose of solving a mystery. Well, that mystery is still hanging in space. You know, it, was, it comes right down to this cluster of teachers that had reactivated Epstein-Barr virus, all got sick in the same room, no apparent reason. At the very least, we can go ahead and clear up this matter and find out if this situation applies to other clusters, especially when I Dr. Chin Yang presented evidence of the 2019 Mold Congress that made stachybotrys more of a butt kicker than ever before. It shows that certain uh, strains, a uh, evil twin, if you will, is actually more dangerous than stachybotrys charterum because it shuts down cell division. It's a powerful protein synthesis inhibitor, but without the overt neurotoxic effects. And Dr. Yang was speculating that a lot of the times they thought stachybotrys might not actually be that harmful. It's because this evil twin didn't give you the warning you needed to get out of the situation. It feels like as well because of the CDC's lack of uh, acknowledgement towards the effects of stachybotrys as a neurotoxin may be yeah. affecting Dr. Shoemaker's decision. Unfortunately, we didn't get into this. Uh, I mean, there's always, there's never enough time. But when... The um, Dr. Ching, Dr. Peterson, Dr. Komarov, and other researchers converged on Incline Village back in 1985. They generated so much good evidence that it scared the heck out of people. It made it appear that Incline Village was ground zero for a deadly new disease. And if you look at the Holmes Committee, they had many good names under consideration for the new syndrome. Mild encephalomyelitis was one, post-viral fatigue syndrome, epidemic neuromyasthenia, uh, chronic mononucleosis-like syndrome. They had a lot of different serious-sounding names, and they chose the dumbest one of all. And the reason for that 
is they wanted to trivialize the outbreak to diffuse the scare to bring the tourists back to Lake Tahoe and they could conduct research quietly without the fear factor that was going on. And we hoped that researchers would come back and take a look at how this syndrome began and consider this evidence to be what chronic fatigue syndrome was for, but instead they took off and talked about it like it was a chronic fatigue illness and all the CDC ever knew about was tired people, which is ridiculous. A, a cursory reading of the outbreak of the history, how this started, you can see that there was at least something really scary going on and it was a lot more than just tired people. So conflating it with chronic fatigue illness is that's right there shows a, a mistaken methodology. The toxic mold issue in the mold in buildings and housing has exploded tenfold. I mean, you could go on the, on Google right now and Google that, and you will see so many news articles. It's not the tenomycetes, it's not endotoxins, you know, people are finding these molds. Um, I understand it's a new technology, I understand it's, it is something new, but I think it's too premature to connect causation from a and endotoxins to illness and then throwing out endotoxins that, oh, that's not really a big deal. Um, so I think that's, that's my issue that I have with that. And I would love to talk about that even more with Schumacher. It's hard because you can see that it's very science, 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 but no one is really understanding what is being said. And so we need to bring it down to a more understandable level so that way we can all understand what the hell is going on because everyone is sick and no one knows what to do. Um, and so we want to Bingo. try to get that data over um, to make it sensible for the people that these doctors are treating because we don't talk like that. Scientists don't even understand that. You I think know, we need an investigation into the sociological aspect of this because how on earth did every researcher on the planet, every single one claiming they want to solve chronic fatigue syndrome, either fail or refuse to look into the evidence that started it. During the uh, Lake Tahoe outbreak, we, uh, a couple of us in Incline Village, discovered that by going out to the nearby desert, we experienced a recovery that was so startling the doctors actually lost interest in this because they couldn't believe it. That was my strategy. That's what I did. I went out to the desert and over time, my sensitivity became more acute. I became more aware of what it was back in town that I was reacting to. And I finally narrowed it down to toxic black mold. That if I stay away from that, treat it like plutonium, like it was the worst toxic, horrible substance on the planet, my recovery was absolutely beyond belief. So naturally, I wanted to see if I could reproduce this in others, like Jennifer Brail and Julie Grammeyer. I told them about the toxic mold. I told them what the benefits were of conducting this style of avoidance, and they became mold avoidance. How did she recover? Is she okay? I watched her her um, her documentary on PBS, Unrest, I think it's called. It was very, very interesting. I don't know, was it mold that caused her problems? Yes. In fact, if you read the blogs about, um, written by Jen Brea, she talks about she now believes that the neurological dysfunction was triggered. It was originally set in motion by exposure to toxic black mold. Now, is this, is this a, a chron uh, uh, inherited illness? My sister lived in the house that we were born in for most of her life, and she died in December of last year where the mold i'm sure 
ate away at her body like battery acid. I mean, you don't want to know the horrible way she went. Look at the clusters at the way certain schools all got sick at the same time, in the same place. The um, likelihood of people with some kind of rare genetic susceptibility all congregating at the same place at the same time is astronomically unlikely. I believe that just forget about the genetics. Let's look at the mold. It kicks ass. And the more we look at Stacky Bosch in particular, the more we learn mechanisms where it's fully capable of doing exactly what we say it is. We both lived in that house for uh, many, I lived in that house for 30 years. She lived in that, ha that same house. And, you know, when we were children, the basement used to flood, not totally flood, but the, the sewer would, would back up. Okay, now, yeah. now look, at the, look at the original cluster. If you've read Osler's Web, or read about the Truckee teachers, just look at them. They didn't get sick at home. They got sick at school. Their exposure just at the school, and in particular, one room was enough to trigger something so that from then on, they could not recover. Now, the position of all the doctors at the time was that this is like an allergy, and if you get away from something, that's it, it's over. But if you read my chapter in Mold Warriors, I realized that this was comparable to a peanut allergy where something had sensitized us so badly that microscopic amounts of this was capable of upregulating our immune system. And just like with my commanding officer with the peanut allergy that I almost killed when I breathed peanut molecules in his face, I go, what would happen if you got hit with a few molecules of peanut every single day? Not enough to kill you, but just enough to really beat you up. What if you got that every day? And I believe that this is a comparable situation with mold illness. We were hypersensitized, and from that moment on, what we have to avoid is microscopic amounts. We have to avoid the immune, the damaging immune upregulation, which keeps us from recovering. Those of us who go to the desert, we achieved a, a level of pristinity in our environment that was so good, so mold-free, that recovery came naturally. But then you see these same people, they go back into town, they fall apart again. Now, this is not an easy illness, but I believe that we'd have a better chance of treating it if we would study it rather than keep making excuses and avoiding the evidence. Yeah, and looking into other things, making that more of a priority, selling $1,000 tests and making a whole other, it's almost like a distraction for me. I'm just going to be real with you guys. It's a distraction, really towards what is the actual issue. Like we need to look at the issue and we understand why the issue is not looked into because it's such a big issue. <laughs> if that makes sense for insurance companies and whatever. I mean, imagine having to overhaul an entire infrastructure like that would never happen. So, you know, let's blame a bacteria on your skin. Let's blame a bacteria on the dirt and that solves the mold problem. We know that's not a problem anymore. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just, it's a really touchy subject. I, I, I'm calling bullshit on it and I'm not afraid to um, because I have looked at the literature that he's putting out compared to the mold literature and I'm seeing similarities. So to say causation through bacteria and endotoxins, that's not enough for me. You have to really show me some more data on that because it's so premature. There's so much more data to show mold. Either mold or chronic fatigue syndrome to refuse, I mean flat out refuse, to look at the very clue that starts 
chronic fatigue syndrome, that is such an outrageous breach of science that I believe we need to examine researchers and find out what the heck is wrong with their heads. Science starts with observation. This is an important one. Look into it. What about with the vaccine? My biotoxin doctor, Dr. Running, said that he is not advising his CIRS patients to get the vaccine, but the, the walls are closing in. I can't remain in my bedroom for the rest of my life until this goes away. I'm scared to death to go into public. Um, I have breathing problems as it is. I'm so horribly sick that I can't get out of bed to take a shower. So how am I going to go into the grocery store without getting affected? I'm so weakened. My whole system is just, I, I don't know how to avoid getting COVID. Um, I can't get the J&J vaccine. It's not available anymore. Um, my regular doctor is like, great, yeah, go get the vaccine. But she doesn't understand biotoxin illness. So, <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you advise people to do? Unfortunately, I'm the only healthcare provider here and vaccine recommendations are not under my scope. So our podcast cannot advise you on whether or not you personally should get a vaccine. That's a really, really individualized choice that every person's immune system and medical history has to take into account for themselves. But I think you bring up some other really good points and that is you're sick and you're confused about what your diagnosis means and how to get better. And, and that's really what, and that's really what we're after here, is to fight that fight with you because we know that there's a lot of people like you in that same confusion, and it does seem a little confusing to take the words fatiguing illnesses or chronically fatiguing illnesses and then make it sound like it's the same thing as chronic fatigue syndrome and then say chronic fatiguing illnesses are a big part of A, B, and C, where people can't even then look at chronic fatigue syndrome and trace back just what that is to just to just rule whatever that was out. And, and Eric, I, you know, there was so much science that got tossed out. There is data sets on chronic fatigue syndrome patients. There were findings. So it, did I miss here Dr. Shoemaker say there was no data set for chronic fatigue syndrome or, or did he say there was no data set for chronic fatigue well, he, he keeps repeating that. He keeps saying that the chronic fatigue syndrome people have nothing, no evidence, no data. And that is completely false. If you just read Osler's web, you find out that the reason why the Center for Disease Control was so scared and why they came up with the stupid name is to disguise just how scary the evidence was. I mean, we had uh, cell flow cytometry. We had the low sed rate. We had uh, red cell abnormalities, elevated viral titers, aberrant uh, results on an EBV serology test, which is a standard test, which any doctor can do. So there were tons of evidence. So whenever anybody says there was no evidence in, in chronic fatiguing illness, they're not talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a bit of a, a conflation here that should not occur. In order to overcome that, some people are trying to say, well, this is ME-CFS. And you stick them together, and then you have to take into account all the evidence that's associated with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well, let's just talk about that for one second for context, because I know when chronic fatigue syndrome, when the term was coined, there were actually three researchers that were myalgic encephalomyelitis researchers 
that thought, hey, this looks like ME, maybe we should name it that. And that didn't happen. You know, I have to ask the question, like, <laughs> it's was just chronic fatigue syndrome name switch a, a confusing It's worse than that. Action. The Center for Disease Control actually fully embraced the idea that the Lake Tahoe outbreak was indeed mild encephalomyelitis. And this was written into Gary Holmes' official documents. When Dr. Carlos Lopez, who convened the Holmes Committee, when he came out of this meeting to announce the creation of a new syndrome, he described that the purpose of the new chronic fatigue syndrome was to compare the evidence to find out if it was congruent with mild encephalomyelitis. And somehow doctors managed to dumb this down into chronic fatigue syndrome is depression and it's fatigue. I mean, this is literally the worst failure of the medical system, as far as I can tell, in the entire history of medicine. Well, it started with neurasthenia, right? That was the, or the first name that they'd given it that almost had similar. Would you just go through the progression of how you've seen the mold-related illnesses progress into different names? Because most people haven't heard that from anyone. Chronic fatigue syndrome was actually based on an outbreak. Its primary goal was to determine what contagious organism had passed through Lake Tahoe and left people permanently disabled. And this was very similar to the oil-free myelogic encephalomyelitis outbreak of 1955. In fact, as far as they could tell, to all outward appearances, including the low SED rate, it was identical. But we had uh, new viruses involved, so we really didn't know. But thanks to the CDC's stupid name and the gullibility of doctors in falling into the trap of thinking that this was just chronic fatigue, they never looked at the evidence. So I thought, well, even though they've made a total mess of this thing, I can get them to look into the mold factor, which is apparently unknown to the medical profession because nobody who was examining these clusters back in 1985 came up with the idea that mold is anything more than an allergy. They insisted it was, it was, if there was mold, it was only a weakness that came out because of the virus. And I'm going, well, if you look at the clusters, you'll find that it was the prior mold exposure that set the stage for the chronic illness. So at the very least, I can use chronic fatigue syndrome as a vehicle to get researchers, when they come back and look at the, the first clusters, to get some good out of the deal. At least we can study what's going on with this toxic mold. And over time, this mold effect went from completely unknown, so rare, so unfamiliar, that nobody was able to recognize it, to millions of people have a mold story today. That is an extremely dramatic paradigm shift in a very short period of time. Well, and what were the words that you said that started chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, I was the first prototype selected by Dr. Paul Cheney used my to signs and symptoms right out of my medical chart for the Holmes Committee to create this new syndrome. And I initially refused because I thought, well, if the CDC finds out that mold is involved, this might give them an excuse to not look. They'll just consider it an allergy and go, it's not worth looking into because uh, you know, you're just confusing uh, chronic allergies. And I talked about it with Dr. Jamie and he said, no, researchers will come. They will look into all aspects of this. So your mold complaints won't be a hindrance. And I said, fine, I'll agree to do it. 
And then I warned Dr. Cheney because I felt that the first words to be spoken over the inauguration of a new syndrome would be significant. I said, I have an inexorably increasing reactivity to mold that progresses, gets worse, no matter where I live or how well I take care of myself. And whatever is going on here, if it continues, there will be millions of people like me reactive to mold. You should look into the mold before there are millions of us. Here we are. So yes, the mold is fascinating, but we also need to ask how it is that not a single researcher, not one, ever looked into it. If you look at the uh, mold experts these days, anytime there's a, a sick building somewhere, they, oh yeah, that's mold. That's probably toxic mold. They identify it with ease. How is it that they can read about the clusters of chronic fatigue syndrome, all documented? These are on videos. These are in millions of blogs. They're in books. How is it that not a single one can read about these clusters and go, gosh, I wonder if that might be mold? Well, the bottom line here is you thought when you started chronic fatigue syndrome that mold could be behaving in a new way and it could be becoming more aggressive and so could other microbes. And the bottom line here is if you're right, if you are right, it means the research that's being done on CIRS is more harmful than it is helpful. That's a distinct possibility, yes. I'm going to remain hopeful because Dr. Shoemaker did say something interesting and it sounded like there was something about nanoparticles that it might be showing up on his side somewhere. And I know that, I, I've heard you say that nanoparticles could be affected, affecting actinomycetes the same way that it's affecting fungi. So it could be the same effect on multiple microbes. So I'm really hoping that maybe there's still a window there where there could be meaningful research done because... At the end of the day, that's the whole effect, right? Is that the nanoparticles are increasing the virulence of these microbes and they're acting like they've never acted before. Yeah, that's my theory. Mm -hmm. I presented on this at uh, Dr. Shoemaker's 2015 SIRS Symposium in Phoenix, Arizona. And amazingly enough, this did not inspire any researcher to ask a single question about it. Do all of these illnesses fall under the biotoxin illness umbrella? Well, <laughs> I guess I mean, uh, I say they do, but unfortunately, Dr. Shoemaker has drawn in so many different pathogens, uh, pisteria, Lyme disease, brown roku, spider bites, ciguatoxin, that is all confusing. It's very difficult to study. In science, if at all possible, if you can narrow down the variable to one thing easy to study, you can make swift progress. So. I don't really, this is why I don't call my illness SIRS and why I don't use the biotoxin rubric because it's too vague and confusing. And I know that most people think that chronic fatigue syndrome is a confusing name because it was deliberately contrived to be that way. But if you look at what that name represents, it is a cluster of teachers right at its very core. You can trace back chronic fatigue syndrome to three teachers in a single room. And if you study it, scientifically, according to what happened to those teachers, how their illness progressed, then chronic fatigue syndrome is a specific type of mold illness, it's a certain type of damage, and this hypersensitivity syndrome, it's really a better thing to call it hypersensitivity than a disease. It's a lot easier to just narrow it down. So that, like I say, that's why I don't use the, the biotoxin name or SIRS name. 
And I was hoping that Dr. Schumacher was going to eventually move towards connecting up SIRS with chronic fatigue syndrome, but his uh, focus on actinomycetes has been so complete that he's kind of stepped away from that for the last year and a half. But by validating me here, perhaps we can get back on track, get some researchers to come back and look at how the Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome started and look at one variable and make some progress just at least for this subset. Eric, I have a question for you. So I'm in interior construction. I build commercial buildings. Uh, what are your thoughts on gypsum uh, drywall as a control? Uh, that's one of the variables that I see most often is the substrate of gypsum with the paper backing of drywall tends to be a fantastic petri dish, as it were, for stachybotrys mold. Uh, do you think that that could be one of the reasons that the CDC stays away from it? Because Absolutely. every building in the United States has been built out of paper walls now. Yeah, and it's not just a fabulous substrate, but the um, spores of stachybotrys and other molds are incorporated into the paper. They survived the drying process, so they're just waiting for a water leak. Or to be broken up where they'll spread their spores everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 20 years ago, I just went around to various construction sites and gathered samples of, of sheet rock from what widely dispersed area so that whatever grew hopefully would be from within the paper, not from the local environment. And each and every one of them, you know, I just a little Ziploc bag with some water and they all lit up with mold. And then we later found that, yes, the um, stachybotrys spores, when they first encounter water, they harden their shell. They don't try to grow right away. They uh, actually form a really impenetrable capsule, which is easily capable of surviving the processes of making paper. So yes, one of the reasons they don't want to talk about the uh, debt problems with the sheetrock is because we've created a huge problem that is now waiting to light up with any water leak or condensation that comes along. Which came from a lot of that with the litigation that happened in the early 2000s with the Texas lawsuits that happened with the builders. Uh, I forget the name of the, the lawsuit, but that's uh, where all the uh, disclaimers come from in our, our mortgage. Yeah, when, you, in our when you look back at Melinda Ballard's Dripping Springs incident, which really put toxic mold on the map. I mean, that was the first time it made national news, the USA Today um, headlines. What uh, people don't talk about is how angry the residents of Dripping Springs got with Melinda because when they started testing sheetrock in the adjacent houses in that whole area, they found that all of them had stachybotrys. Right. So their property value went down. Mm-hmm. I lived in Austin at that time. I'm, I'm in Arizona now, uh, but I, I remember that uh, distinctly with the news uh, that it was a big deal. And it's still a big deal because it changed the way that they write the insurance policies for these houses and mold not being covered under our insurance policies. The early Yahoo groups that were emerging at that time, this was before Facebook and before Twitter, and Yahoo was just getting going. And I joined doctor groups and I told them, Watch out because the exclusions are on the way. Soon you will be receiving a letter for change to your policy. 
it's going to exclude anything to do with water damage or illness from mold. So they actually started getting these. They go, my God, how did you know this was coming? They go, well, all you have to do is watch the insurance companies because unlike uh, people waiting for science, which takes forever, when insurance companies see a problem, they act immediately. You know, what's really funny is, you know, the whole atinomycetes wrap of, of the atinomycetes being on your skin and then you're contaminating your house or the atinomycetes are outside of the dirt. Like, who, who can you go after then? If atinomycetes are the major problem, you can't go after your landlord. Nothing will get done and you'll remain sick. So you have to think about those things sometimes. Um, I'm, I'm having a really tough time understanding Dr. Shoemaker's shift in focus. I mean, the toxic mold is so fascinating. It's so well documented. It's been reproduced so many times that to move away from that and look into a common soil bacteria. I mean, we've have so many examples of people that got sick after the black mold grew. Why, why lose interest in that? Well, you just made me realize if they're not focusing on mold and saying it doesn't need to be prioritized for human health and just the pathogenic bacteria on the patient's skin, that's going to lead to always blaming, what, the patient's own like skin biome for their illness? It's the same stuff with the genetics. Like, oh, you have bad genetics. That's why you're sick. Genetics and skin biome both take the focus away from the external environment. I think he's looking at downstream effects. This is my intuition and kind of my understanding through personal experience is that mold is really the, the primary cause. And he has it on the biotoxin pathway where essentially it causes all sorts of issues. One of the downstream issues that occurs is that the microbiome in your GI essentially diminishes, both in the variability of the types of uh, microbes in your GI and the levels of them. Um, that then, with the uh, lack of uh, the diminished antimicrobial peptides, then causes uh, a susceptibility to skin issues. So I think it's not, it's really the, the mold's causing the primary issue. And so what Dr. Shoemaker is seeing is really the secondary pathology that's a follow-on. If, if uh, actinomycetes were the problem, why is it teachers in buildings with stachybotrys getting sick and not gardeners and ditch diggers? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is possible to get sick from, from gardening, um, but the, the, everyone is essentially, like you're saying, it's in, it's in buildings. The buildings are, when you have water intrusion issues, there's biofilms being formed and there's all sorts of things going on. As we know, uh, mold's kind of the primary, you can, it's, it's pretty obvious, it's visible. You can see it um, and, and it's dominant. And, yeah, uh, Dr. Shoemaker is acting like we've got some kind of positive evidence when we don't. <laughs> Stachybotrys was extremely well studied, has been ever since the 1990s, and every study confirms that it's a real butt kicker. Yeah. Well, everything that you just said is we actually found this in a study. Eric just sent this study to Alicia and I, and it was how trichothecenes, and I don't remember what else was mentioned, but how it basically disintegrates the gut microbiome through like destroying the mucosal layers in the GI tract, and how that is like a primer for immune system failure, and that bacterial problems are co-infections or like an afterthought. And so it, it seems like there's already research published that that's not the primary thing. 
I mean, if you want to make a case for tinnos and endotoxins, that's great, but don't say that that is the main thing and the mold is very tiny. You can't just throw out evidence, especially when it's the very clue that starts a syndrome. Did he explain how he ruled out mold and mycotoxins for the brain injury and the inflammation that he was seeing? Because I heard a lot of like how they're identifying like... He just said that uh, it's statistically negligible on his gene test, less than 7% of the gene activation. Well, 7%. And you know, if you read his own books, he goes, one change in one gene can lead to downstream effects. So you cannot look at this from a statistical point of view because one gene can make all the difference. I've gone through pretty much uh, the hell's run of biofilm issues. And for me, um, I had mold issues long before biofilm issues. I didn't, I was totally unfamiliar with them. Biofilm's now, uh, you know, a major issue with the CDC release saying that there's uh, Six million miles of pipe contaminated biofilm, making seven million people a year sick. And I think that's an underestimate by far, <laughs> based on what I've experienced. And also, since we got kicked out of our home last year by the Saharan dust storm, we've stayed in hotels until now <laughs> and rented cars since my car broke down. Everything's been contaminated since the Saharan dust storm. All the cars we've rented, the rental trucks, every hotel we've been in has had issues. So there's been a major ecological shift since the last Saharan dust from last year. Uh, it's impacted, you know, the stuff you buy in the stores. Uh, it's pretty hard for me to find clothes that are not contaminated. We, we moved to Florida and it's like, you know, I can go to a dozen stores and just about all the clothes are having issues. Usually it's not very easy to see. You have to hold the clothes up to the light in a certain way in order to see the filaments growing on them, but it's everywhere. So um, there's been, <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a new shift though. It's, it hasn't been around. You, know, you really. see uh, Strange Days on Planet Earth, the Nat Geo special? Uh, I don't think I've seen that. Well, you, you've got to watch that then. Because, uh, among other things, it talks about drought in uh, Africa, Lake Chad drying up, and the dust storms off Lake Chad going all the way across the Atlantic and hit, hitting um, uh, the Caribbean and causing asthma in school children. And among other things, they traced the actual genome of a specific mold, Aspergillus sidawi, that was originating in Lake Chad. They found it was the same thing. It was afflicting the coral. It was making the coral sick in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there's the black band disease on the coral. In my experience, the, one of the main pathogens is called Begatoa. It's, you know, it's visible. <laughs> it's easy to identify. It's the second largest bacteria, you know, known to stop. And I walk down to the beach right now and see it on all the seaweed there. Essentially, since 2015, an equivalent of 7 million elephants washing onto the shores of uh, the Caribbean, Mexico, and here in Florida. It's an immense shift in the ecosystem. And when the stuff, uh, when the seaweed, which usually seaweed is, you know, rooted to the floor of the sea, the seaweed is free floating. And so NASA can actually track it pretty easily and uh, it washes onto the shores. When it washes onto the shore, you essentially, if you want to remove it, you have a very short period of time to be able to do it without making workers uh, affected to the health issues. Because once it starts rotting, it 
creates a, a toxic gas called hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide can kill you if it's in uh, not very high concentrations. And then uh, hydrogen sulfide is the favorite food for Begatoa. I can go to the beach and take photos of all the seaweed there. It's all covered with Begatoa. And it's usually, it's transparent, so it's not very easy to see if it's in your environment, like in a home or on your clothes. <laughs> but um, it glows in the dark uh, under, under black lights. It'll glow blue, the filaments do. It turns white if it has access, access to sulfur. And uh, I went to an infectious doctor in Atlanta. We had issues in the house. And the last thing I expected him to say is that the biofilm issues that were happening, happening on skin, and our skin felt like it was burning on fire. I didn't expect he was going to say it's essentially SIRS. <laughs> and this was an allopathic infectious disease doctor. And I didn't expect him to be testing. So um, he ran the search profiles, the labs, the basic ones, and um, said his conclusion is you have massive exposure to biotoxins. <laughs> Our house was pretty messed up. Um, anyway, um, I didn't realize it was affecting my skin for a long time until um, I connected with one of the Facebook groups and then realized I had telltale signs. I think this is all downstream from really what was being caused originally for me from a mold, from a house which had mold problems. It caused my immune system, immune system to go wacky. And then, like I said, uh, it caused the GI issues where the microbiome is, is not healthy. And then the microbiome in your, in your intestines is infects your entire body. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're seeing a lot of things going wrong. I mean, the uh, trees are dying of mold, frogs, snakes, bats. We've, we've seen uh, fungal diseases take off like nobody's ever, they couldn't have existed before because now we've got species going extinct from them. So something major is happening, but what to research? You know, the problem is getting funding, getting research, getting attention to something specific. Well, I thought at least by starting this chronic fatigue syndrome, which has turned into a really big deal, at least we can get research into one thing. We can get some serious funding going, some research going. And yet every chronic fatigue syndrome researcher, every, every aspiring, ambitious advocate or researcher all wants to look at their own pet theory. And by doing this, they don't cooperate. They form a competition. So nobody gets any attention. You go nowhere with it, you know, at least if we looked into the mold, maybe that could have went down a path of maybe looking at even more external issues like the yeah, my, my off, offer to the uh, mold congress to Dr. Shoemaker was by connecting up your entity with this famous syndrome, then this will leverage research. They'll have to respond because it's something that's, I mean, like 20 million people have a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis. Yeah, well, that benefits the insurance companies. <laughs> there's, like Dr. Shoemaker just said, there's no money to study it. There's no money well, to study. he could get it. He could get it if he were to admit, if he were to connect SIRS with chronic fatigue syndrome, I think that would open up some doors. I think, you know, like he said, he's running on private funds. He could do it, I think, if he wanted to put his effort yeah, why would Why would any researcher turn down the opportunity to to get that kind of leverage yeah so 
you know, I've worked in universities for years and there's all sorts of politics that go on that if you're a scientific research in a university, there's things you can't touch. <laughs> right. Why would a researcher do reverse politics? Why would he engage in behaviors that undermine his own ability to get power, influence, and research? Are we talking about Dr. Shoemaker in particular? Uh, yeah, but uh, all of them have done that. Or all of them, yeah. So, um, just if you can't publish something, you're not going to study it. If the editors of the major journals don't find it attractive, you're not going to get it published. It's an entire system of, of really control that's causing this to, to be marginalized. One reason is because there's no blockbuster drug that will take care of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a systemic issue. If the insurance firms actually had to cover replacing your homes to the extent of, of medical necessity, it's going to cost, you know, it'll put them out of business, essentially. You know, uh, getting treated like you, you did going to the desert. If they do that in Russia, actually, they'll send you away to uh, retreats to get, to, to get it well. But in the U.S., there's no system like that where, where they'll send you away. Unless you are intoxifying yourself with heroin or something, then they'll send you to a retreat. My focus was not on getting everybody to go to the desert. I said, this is a clue. This is an insight into the etiology of this process. We can study it. Yeah. So yeah. one of the reasons, one of the ways that they're working to defeat my efforts to get research is they do this constantly. Eric wants everybody to live in the desert. I don't care if anybody goes to the desert. This is a clue. It's like a bathtub. If your bathtub's overflowing, you'd have to get to a place where less water is going in and more water is going out. <laughs> oh, I, I am extremely against this toxic soup, toxic overload concept. That has been the most destructive interference to science because anytime you try to look at any one thing, they go, well, you can't do that because there's something else. If you look at this, you might not discover everything goes into the toxic soup trash bin. And if research has not fallen into that trap, been the discoverers of toxic mold within a few minutes. Everybody has toxic loads from modern living. Remember, Lake Tahoe is the most pristine, beautiful mountain community. It's the place where people go to get healthy. Yeah. So there was something specific that happened. If it were toxic overload, everybody in Mexico City or Sacramento would be dead before anybody got sick at Lake Tahoe. So why did we have cluster outbreaks at Lake Tahoe? We've got such a beautiful, pristine environment. If you look at uh, for a toxic agent that's capable of doing this and forget about the toxic load, wow, it turns out that there are a couple things that showed up in the environment that are capable of doing exactly what we said they were doing. Yeah, the toxic load only becomes an issue after you get exposed to the, the mold stuff. It's there, it's in the background, it's causing diabetes and all sorts of things. Uh, Eric called it chemically induced AIDS, right Eric? Yes, I did. As scary as that sounds, but it's acting like a chemically induced AIDS. It's completely suppressing your immune system and then whatever's happening in your environment, you're going to get sick from that virus or that fungus or whatever. And so it's just like... What blows me away is Dr. Chin Yang explained this at the Mold Congress. And I thought, oh my God, all these mold experts, they're going to go into shock. They're going to go, wow, there is a specific mold that's capable of shutting off your immune system. So this fits the facts. 
to all be looking into it. Not a single one of them did. Not one. They didn't even tell anybody about it. Isn't yeah. that interesting? How do you hear that information and then you completely don't say anything about it ever again? They all went to Eric's groups and started attacking him. Oh, yeah. He was a complete piece of garbage and that none of his evidence mattered. I just wanted to stop in and say that I hope it went well because, you know, my, my concern is always that the advocates try to stay on as much of the same page as possible because we've got bad guys to fight who are influencing the policies with naysaying, like we don't exist, we're not real, we're making it up. And so it always concerns me when I see um, conflicts among those who know that we're sick and there is something to it. I like to see those get smoothed out. Well, for us to have mold policies, we all need to acknowledge mold as part of the problem. And so we're not gonna fight any bad guys on any mold policies with this being not mold. So I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, that's the thing. Some of, some of our proponents are more fighting mold some are more fighting mold toxins. Some are more trying to fight all the toxins. So it's hard to keep everybody on the same group. I, I, I like to try and encourage people to say, well, I don't agree with doctor, but however, I think he's a fine physician. And sometimes that's really hard to do it. So anyway, I'm glad Dr. Shoemaker came on. Um, I hope it, it encouraged, you know, that we're all fighting to get treatments together on this and I just like to deal with knocking out the bad guys so I don't know what you all I don't even understand half of what you all do well something so. that you missed is we asked Dr. Shoemaker if he felt that the new findings with actinomycetes would force the SERS community and the people who are doing all these mold and mycotoxin summits to change their name because mold is no longer the main focus and he said yes so he's really moved away from mold in a big way has he moved away from it or is he trying to include another aspect of the toxins of well, the water damage building? But his actions speak different. Well, Eric Mano asked him if some of like the mold businesses are going to need to change their name to like Atino Mycetes businesses. And Dr. Shoemaker said yes, probably. Huh. Well, that could be true, but that doesn't mean that mold is completely out of the picture or mycotoxins are completely out of the picture. It just means that Dr. Shoemaker is focusing his efforts more in that area is how I interpret that. So the, the people from his own organization that got in my group and started criticizing me, you can see that they clearly took this to mean that we have moved on from mold, moved on from chronic fatigue syndrome and Dr. Shoemaker's new science, new research is the only direction to go. That's their opinion. Eric, you and I have been doing this for so long. We know there's, there's not going to be, everybody's not going to agree on everything. You just have to keep going in your area. Well, I think that's about it, you guys. We've been on here for a while since noon. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. I just really want some answers and I want us all to get the help that we need. And I really want people to look into Eric's evidence, the original evidence, so we can finally get eyes on mold and stachybotrys because it seems like it's a lost cause with everyone for some reason, um, with the people that are important that need to be looking into this. So we're really just trying to continue on with what we're doing and 
continue on bringing on people who are experts in the field who do validate mold. But we do also talk about other things um, in terms of healthy living, healthy housing, and all that good stuff. So thank you again for joining us. And uh, we will have a new podcast for you Monday. So keep an eye on that. It's a really good one. Keely goes in depth into the mental health and suicide aspect of being sick with mold illness. It's a very, very hard conversation to have, but it needs to be had because this really, and as we all know, devastates our life, even to the point where we feel like we don't want to live anymore. So check out that episode and check out all the other episodes. Um, We do have some cool stuff on Patreon coming up. We do allow early access to all of our episodes on Patreon. So if you can't wait and you want to hear it when I release it before, go ahead and become a Patreon donor. We have some really cool Q and A's coming up in the future and actually a book that talks about Eric's situation, but also includes the effect and information on that. So we are working on all these projects and different things, and we can't wait to share it with you. So thanks again, everyone. Take care.